Welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss Juana's addiction. What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing. Everybody. Hope you're feeling good. Today I'm going to talk about Jane's addiction. Jane's addiction are monumentally important in rock and roll music. Some would say they're more influential than Nirvana, and I would be able to make that argument myself. Jane's addiction invented heavy alternative music. Bands like R.E.M. had been out doing the alternative rock thing, but we had never seen a band that was in the macho heavy metal mode come out and flaunt the fact that they were not that. So Jane's formed in LA in 1985. Perry Farrell sings, Dave Navarro plays guitar, Stephen Perkins is the drummer, and the original bass player is Eric Avery. Now Eric and Perry Farrell had been in a band together called Psycom. Perry and Dave, who have a genuine bond, uh, both of their mothers had died through unnatural deaths. Perry was born in 1959, and his dad was a jeweler, and his mother was an artist, and she committed suicide when Perry was little. In fact, Perry Farrell's mother, as well as his artist girlfriend, took their own lives. And that's what the track, Then She Did, is about. Now her paints are dry.
So Perry was older and he really kind of shaped the band. But Dave had his own pain to deal with. His parents were divorced. One weekend he was with his dad and he was going to go home to his mom and his mom's best friend. They called and they got no answer. Dave and his dad drive over. They find the mom and aunt bound and gagged and chopped up in the closet. It was his mother's boyfriend and he went on the lam for several years. He ended up on America's Most Wanted, but eventually they caught him. And in 2015, uh, Dave released a documentary called Morning Sun. And that tells the story of his mother's murder and his own drug addiction and how he has to overcome the pain he's had. Sue Jory and Connie Navarro were brutally murdered in Navarro's Westwood condominium. He changed the entire family forever. Now, Connie Navarro's killer, John Riccardi, was on the run for eight years before he was finally caught by authority. And then my dad came in with the me she's gone. It was awful. He was in such pain and I was in such shock. And it, I mean, it just was the darkest, most horrible, horrible moment of my life. So both Dave and Perry had their own drug issues. I saw a quote with Perry Farrell where he says, In those days we were hitting speed balls really hard. Our daily life would consist of waking up, getting a spoon, drawing back heroin, cocaine, admixtures, slamming them, and getting your day going. That was our daily ritual. Somebody came up with the phrase, ritual of the habitual, and I thought it would be better if it came off the tongue, ritual de la habitual, and that became the album title. That night I discovered if I ingest something, I, it's going to make pain better up a joint and smoked it and realized that it took pain away. I became a full-blown drug addict from that night on. Dave is a scary drug addict. When he goes, he goes for death. Navarro said that just last week he had a camera rolling while he was shooting up while on the phone with a rehab clinic. He says that he meant this to be an ironic comical drama scene, but that, quote, at the end of it, I overdose, it makes it not funny. Do you guys know where we get some coke? Yeah, I mean, like... Just like that. You got it on you right now? Uh, right around the corner, man. Two minutes or less. Give me the money and I'll go. Rule number one, never let the money leave your hands before you got the goods. I'm gonna stay here. Where my money goes, I'll go. It ain't busted. Rule number two, never wear a dress while sparring. The chain goes to the store at eight. She walks up unseen There was an actual Jane, 
with an actual heroin habit and abusive boyfriend named Sergio. And they lived with Perry and a dozen others in this group house in Hollywood. And yes, she would talk endlessly about having to scrimp for a trip to Europe. Legend is that Jane financed the band in the early days. She was a prostitute and would take her meager earnings and help the band get equipment. I don't know if that's true, but that's the urban myth at least. If you take these three women, Jane and the two mothers, not to mention possibly the girlfriend who died from suicide, you can see how it affected the band musically when you had your lead singer and your guitar player with this kind of history. They didn't sing about women as being cherry pies, they sang about classic girls instead. Such took the misogyny out of the music that was going on. I'm sure that Perry would say something to the effect that they added romance back into rock. So Farrell and Avery bonded over a mutual appreciation for Joy Division and the Velvet Underground. I don't really think most heavy rock bands at that time were influenced by groups like the Velvet Underground. I can't think of any others. What a day to go to the record store, August 23rd, 1988. album from Jane's Addiction and the debut album from Guns N' Roses. That was a giant day, but both records kind of simmered for a while. Neither one of them took off straight out of the gate. When you looked at Guns N' Roses, you said, after all this hair metal that's gone on, this is how a rock and roll band should look. You look at Jane's Addiction and you go, wow, a rock and roll band can look like that?
they opened your mind a lot more. Guns N' Roses kind of solidified rock, whereas Jane's Addiction just pushed the boundaries in visuals, the artistic album covers, the way they dressed, the things they did on stage. All of this stuff was just unheard of for its time in such a well-known band with videos and things like this. So nothing shocking is the album that came out that day from Jane's Addiction, and it is a sonic tour de force. That record sounds like few other albums I've heard, and at that time, was really mind-blowing. That shit's from a different planet. Mainstream rock press didn't buy it. Rolling Stone said the band is full of shit. So just to give you an idea about what other artists were on the charts in 1988. Bon Jovi, Michael Jackson, Pet Shop Boys, Vixen, Richard Marks, Poison, Millie Vanilli, Debbie Gibson, Rick Astley, Richard Marks, Tiffany, Bananarama, Phil Collins, Sheena Easton, George Michael, Toto, Madonna, Yaz, Erasure, and Luther Vandross. Jane's Addiction did not belong up there, but here they came. I think that Jane's Addiction's first album was overshadowed a bit by Appetite for Destruction, but ultimately I think it stands up to it pretty well. It's produced by Dave Jordan, who did Social Distortion, Alice in Chains, Fishbone, Poe, Public Image limited but this band was a mess from the beginning right out of the gate perry farrell demanded like 50 percent of the album's royalties because he wrote the lyrics and all of the publishing royalties and it ended up that the band gave in to most of his demands so the other three members got something like less than 15 percent and that was right from the beginning so eric avery left over perry farrell accusing him and taunting him about screwing around with his girlfriend avery denies that he ever did clearly perry farrell thought otherwise you guys like stealing? How about stealing another man's girl? Do you like that? You like that, huh? That's fair to you, huh? How about, how about a good friend? Would you steal a good friend's girl? You would, huh, wouldn't you? Don't fuck me. Don't blame me because you got no honor in your life. Don't blame me because you have no... no chivalry in your soul. How insecure are you, pal? Do you need, do you need to steal your friend's woman or can't you go and get one for yourself? I just, want, I just wanted to ask you that. Dude. 
Dave and Perry's heroin use was already a thing. And Eric was crucial to this band. His bass lines were really tight and tension-filled. Bass parts always seemed to be building up to something. And he wrote several songs like Mountain Song, Had a Dad, Jane Says, Summertime Rolls. I mean, that's half of the great songs on the album. Me and my thing is when a band is like that in this sort of embryo phase, then they're less likely to toss out ideas. So for these songs, what Avery would do is he would come up with these lyrical concepts and then Perry would create the lyrics for the song from it. So like for the song Had a Dad, Eric Avery discovered that he had a different biological father gave that information to Perry along with the demo of Had a Dad and then you got the song. created the cover image, and it's a sculpture of these two nude, conjoined twins on a rocking chair with their hair on fire. And he created that just like he did on the second album, and it caused several store chains to refuse to carry it until they reissued it with the brown paper bag. When Ritual de la Bitual came out in 1990, at first I was a little disappointed because the songs, the singles in particular, had more of a structure and more of a rock and roll thing going on, whereas I felt like the, the other album just had these sort of blooms of music, these these avalanches of sound. This record seemed to be a little more straightforward at first.
And then you'd see the video for Ben Caught Stealing, and you thought, oh shit, they've sold out. But this is the album where, on the second side, you start getting some of these influences of their childhood. And there's three songs in a row that are memorial songs to Perry Farrell's uh, girlfriend who committed suicide, Viola. She died of a heroin overdose. The epic track on this album, which is one of the most epic tracks of all time, is Three Days. It deals with this subject matter, and it's just a building of sections of songs put together that I was amazed they could reproduce live. And in fact, the live versions are oftentimes better than the studio version. At this moment, you should be with us. I miss you, my dear Zayola.
the other two songs about Ziola is Then She Did and Of Course. And Then She Did is a favorite. It's got almost like a progressive rock influence going on and also a very Zeppelin-y thing. The album cover caused some more drama. This one has uh, what appears to be Perry in bed with two women, made out of paper mache possibly, I'm not sure. It's awesome, awesome art. He's a great artist. So they had to change the album cover, and they put the text of the First Amendment in black type against a white background with a parental advisory sticker stuck on the end. It's amazing what people would get uptight about back then. I enjoy this whole record, but side two, the last four songs are where it's at. It couldn't be a better side. So then Perry Farrell started Lollapalooza, and what a monumental change to culture that was. We're still feeling the repercussions of that. Jane's Addiction was doing its final tour, and uh, it's almost like when you're terminally ill, what do you have to lose? So Lollapalooza, the idea was, we have all day, and we've got all these great underground groups. I would say 99.9% of those kids would have never gone to an iced tea concert but the group was descending further and further into heroin. They were hating each other. And Clay and I and our band were in New York City. We were at the New Music Seminar and they had an award ceremony. And they said best album of the year was Jane's Addiction, Ritual de la Bitual. They go to a screen, large screen behind the stage at Stephen Perkins accepting the award on behalf of the band, which he informs us has just broken up. addiction. They may have been there at the rise of alternative rock, but recording their 1990 breakthrough album Ritual De Lo Habitual was so tension fraught that Jane's Addiction agreed to do the first Lollapalooza tour in 1991, organized by Jane's Addiction singer Perry Farrell and then break up. That was probably for the best. Jane's Addiction set on the first Lollapalooza ended early because Farrell and guitarist Dave Navarro got into a fight in front of thousands of fans. By 1992, Jane's Addiction was done, for at least a little while. The worst fight was actually uh, me and Dave Navarro, and it was the very first Lollapalooza. It was in Phoenix, Arizona, and it was very hot, and Dave didn't feel too good. And he was telling me he didn't want to be on the stage anymore. And I said, well, but you must finish the show. He said, well, now I'm done. And I said, no, you're not. Got into a big sock out, literally body slam, and uh, he finished the show. But we hated each other from that moment for, for a long time. And I guess it was both our faults. 
But we've grown up since then. So the band was done, and then John Frusciante left the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and they replaced him with Dave Navarro. Now on paper, that sounds awesome, but it didn't quite play out that way. They put out an album called One Hot Minute, and I can't find a hot minute on the album. Meanwhile, Perry Farrell went out and had his own band called Porno for Pyros. Interesting band, somewhat limited, still worth checking out. of John returning, Eric Marshall was replaced by Jane's Addiction's Dave Navarro, who joined in September 1993. The new lineup headed into the studio, but by all accounts, recording was a shaky process. The band had trouble adjusting to Dave Navarro's musical style. We just come from completely different musical backgrounds. It took the Chili Peppers over a year to complete one hot minute, but when it was finally released in August 1995, critics felt it lacked focus. And with Dave Navarro leaving the band soon afterwards, it seemed the Chili Peppers' red-hot ride might be over. And then Dave got fired from the Chili Peppers and John Frusciante came back. Dave is still pretty bitter about things. I don't know exactly what went down. I think a lot of it had to do with his drug use. But the Chili Peppers were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and even though Dave had been in the band for three years, he was not inducted as part of that lineup. I think that Jane should have gone in well ahead of the Chili Peppers. Yeah, in a second, sitting by a waterfall. 
then Jane's got back together temporarily, except for Flea was replacing Eric Avery. Those shows are incredible. Look up the videos. Amazing. About this time, they also put out a compilation album called Kettle Whistle. It has two new songs on it with Flea on bass. Neither one of those songs are terribly interesting. It's got a great live version of Three Days. Some cool demos and live stuff. But it's the usual sort of post-band packaged, we might get back together, toe-in-the-water thing. You, in America! Pinlock is dead! I don't know if you feel safer. I don't know if you feel bad for your family. I don't know if you're happy that motherfucker is now laying dead in the ground. Well, I can tell you how I feel. I just feel like fucking partying! I'm sorry, he killed a bunch of my relatives, my friends, and my loved ones. So fuck him! So then they basically ended a long period of playing, touring, and Kelly and I saw a show in there, and it was phenomenal. It couldn't have been any cooler. So finally the band was going back in the studio, and man, my expectations were so high, because they had gotten Bob Ezrin to produce. So this is 2001, and the album that they came out with was Strays. And Strays has a cool song called Superhero, which was on the HBO show Entourage as the theme song. not a good album. I don't know how you could have missed. Maybe if they had had Eric Avery back in the band. Apparently there was a period here where Trent Reznor was working with the band and it didn't work out. He was trying to get Eric Avery back in and was trying to get the group to be its best and they couldn't get it together. It gets really weird in 2010 when Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses joins Jane's Addiction. Ultimately I don't think they did more than a couple of shows. Maybe Duff couldn't deal with the drug thing if that was still going on. I don't know.
2011, The Great Escape Artist came out. So this is the band's fourth album. Not terribly great. It's really missing something. It's got to be Eric Avery. But it was apparently during the recording sessions and writing sessions for this album that Duff left. They were starting to use some electronics in there that Duff didn't like, and I think he was really hoping they would do the kind of album that everyone else wanted as well. Perry Farrell would record his vocal parts in a home studio and then send digital files to the other guys to work on. So Duff had some input into the songwriting process, but he wanted it to be darker and heavier and more vicious. Some more interesting facts are that Dave Navarro had actually had the chance to be in Guns N' Roses when Izzy Stradlin left. And Slash tried to set up some auditions and Dave just wouldn't show up. And then Dave kind of became the standard rock star guy on every reality show. I did one about his getting married, he did one about tattoos, and one about guitars and cooking, I think. Dave has even directed porn. He had a film called Broken. And he's never won a Grammy, but I think he got an adult video award. So I think Jane's Addiction is probably the most influential artist in alternative music. They influence groups like Tool, Korn, Smashing Pumpkins, Limp Bizkit, System of a Down, even Rage Against the Machine. And Jane's Addiction's music has heavy metal, punk rock, folk, fusion, funk, psychedelic rock, prog, and black tar heroin. So right now the group is broken up again. They've gotten back together and broken up so many times. Who knows if by the time this podcast gets out, if something hadn't changed. But you have to know those first two albums. They are so good. Give them a shot. Peace and thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much.
has been produced by Donnie Shattuck. We're live, Sunday Live. Jane's Addiction comes off the show, and the guy, Perry Farrell, walks up to the desk, and he goes, Can we, like, redo that, man? <laughs> <laughs> and the producer's like, Bro, that was live. It's over. There is no. He's like, well, it was just if we could. Can we edit it? <laughs> <laughs> no, meatball. It's live. It's over. It's already out there. And I think they were one of the first bands that got cut from their second song because they were too wasted to perform. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>